Welcome to LifeBridge Online. Whenever it is you're watching this, we are grateful that you are tuning in and allowing us to minister to you. We pray throughout the week before these sermons are recorded and before they are released to the internet, uh, however you may get it, we pray that the Word of God will meet you where you are. No matter what you're doing, no matter what's going on in your world, whether you are stressed from life or if you are sitting down just enjoying a cup of coffee on Sunday afternoon, no matter what's going on and where you are, we pray often that the Word of God will meet you uh, where you are in life. It'll comfort you. It will encourage you, maybe even convict you uh, to, to change your life, to do the things that Jesus wants us to do, to live in obedience to Him. With that, let's pray that prayer and we'll get into our topic today. Father, the very things that we have spoken, we pray will happen. Speak to us right now. Allow your word to just resonate within our lives. Father, may we strive to become like you. Thank you, Lord, for dying on the cross. Thank you for your son and the love that he has for us. Meet us right now. Speak to us now, God. In these things we pray. Amen. Well, did you hear the news? I know what you're thinking, Michael. There's always news going on. Um, unless you are like me and live most of your life under a rock, you may not be aware that there is a high-rise condo in the Miami, Florida area that has collapsed. I think I was day number six of them cleaning up the mess, cleaning up the debris, doing the search and rescue uh, before I found out about this. And at the time of this recording, to, to my best knowledge, 11 people have been found uh, already deceased, and there are still over 140 people missing in the debris. This is extremely sad news, especially when you get the full story. The story unfortunately, is a tragedy that could have most likely been avoided had those with earlier news, earlier information, had they done something with it. If you know the story, you know that this building was inspected a few, year, a few years back, and it came back with a uh, major signs of wear and tear. That's what the inspectors found all over the building, major signs of wear and tear. The inspection report who was given to the property managers uh, kind of was taken lightly. They didn't ignore it and they didn't really put it off, but, but it was taken lightly. They, they, weren't, they weren't very uh, proactive. They weren't ta taking necessary steps to rectify the situation. And unfortunately, there just was not any sense of urgency to rectify the wrongs. A few short years later, this condo collapsed. The tragedy could have been avoided had the people who were in charge, who received the information, who received the news, had they done something with it. Maybe they could have made the necessary repairs at a more timely uh, manner. They, they should have communicated with the tenants of the conditions of the structure that they were living in and giving them the opportunity to, to vacate the premises. 
sad story because people received news and they did nothing with it. Our world is full of news that truthfully, most of us tune out. Most news that comes across my news feed is often negative. And I know that I am guilty of going weeks without paying any attention to Fox or CNN or any of the major media outlets. But here's the thing, ignoring the news has consequences. Let me say that again, because this is a, is a lesson that needs to be learned. Ignoring the news has consequences. If you're following along with us, we are in a journey through uh, a book called Core 52, which is looking at 52 core passages in Scripture to, to help us fully understand what the entirety of the Bible is about. And today, the, the topic, the essay that we are on, happens to be about the news, the good news. Uh, Mark 1.1 says, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. That's how Mark, who was kind of written from the perspective of Peter, who followed Jesus at a distance, uh, that's how he begins his work for Jesus, about Jesus. This is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It's not just some good news. This is the good news. The emphasis here is that there is no other news that really matters. There is no other good news greater than this. This is the good news. Is there other good news? Certainly. There's good news out there. Uh, we, we get stories of that. We have radio personalities who will dedicate a section of their show to just communicating good news found within the story. Uh, we have websites dedicated to just good news that is out there uh, so that we don't have to always be bombarded with the negative. There's good news out there in the world and there needs to be good news shared with one another. But Mark makes the point, he puts the emphasis on the word the. This is the good news. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. He is the good news. If you've been around church any length of time, you've heard this in some form or another. Uh, the first four books of which I quoted one of them, uh, the first four books of the New Testament are called the Gospels. Um, they're called the Gospel of Matthew, of Mark, of Luke, and John. These authors are all writing, they're recalling the story of Jesus and the life that they lived with him as observers and investigators who investigated the life of other people. This past week, I had the opportunity to have some people stay in my house from, from another church, another state. And, and I asked them and I asked a few others, um, just people from different denominations, people with different church backgrounds, about the understanding of this word gospel. Gospel is the, the Bible word, which simply means good news. That's, that's what the word gospel means. And as people were giving me their understanding, they all had this one 
trait when it comes to their understanding of the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And if we believe in him, we can have eternal life. And I just want to I want to give an amen to that because those words are so true. But each individual that I spoke with, they simply equated the gospel to salvation. And I don't want to diminish that, but I think there's more to it. In the 1960s, uh, evangelists, people who would go around and they would preach, they would do tent revivals and they would hold crusades, they started teaching on the four laws of spirituality. Uh, they would call them the four spiritual laws. And this was being done in most Protestant churches in our country. Uh, for example, Billy Graham. Billy Graham is very well known for his crusades, his promise keepers, outstanding crusades that have shaped our culture. And, and Billy Graham was known for pushing these four spiritual laws. Those crusades, those tent revivals, all of these were about getting people to make a decision. No greater decision. I don't want to diminish this, but these crusades and these, these events, these revivals that took place in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s even, they were all about getting people to make a decision. Make Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life. And that's what these crusades were all about. And so they narrowed the message of the gospel down to four spiritual laws. Maybe you've seen these before or you've heard of these. Uh, the number one spiritual law is that God loves you and created you to know him personally. The second spiritual law is that man is sinful and separated from God. So we cannot know him personally or experience his love. The third, Jesus Christ is God's only provision for man's sin. Through him alone, we can know God personally and experience God's love. And then the fourth and final spiritual law, we must individually receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Then, and only then, can we experience God personally and know about his love. So as you hear those laws, there's nothing really wrong, is there? I mean, if you have a basic understanding of the Bible, then then you can't make an argument against those four spiritual laws. There's, there's nothing wrong with those. But what has happened over the decades is that these four laws became the gospel. The, the gospel was shrunk down to just these four laws. These things became the, the good news. So this week, as I've been curious about the gospel and the, the history of how the gospel has changed through the decades, I looked at a study that my daughter just finished up. It's a, it's a Bible study that she has done with a lady in our church, a lady who is discipling her. And, and I got to the study, and I was just thumbing through the table of contents, and I, and I looked at the very back, and there was a page dedicated to the gospel. What, what to do now that you've finished the study? And it's all about the good news. 
And, and as I looked at it, it's those four spiritual laws just reworded for kids to understand. Hear me, please. It's not that the gospel, including salvation, is wrong. I don't believe that. But I think the gospel, including salvation only, I think that's an incomplete understanding of what the good news really is. One of my favorite authors is a man by the name of Bill Hull. He says this, I am convinced that by reducing the complete gospel story of God's work from Genesis to Revelation to a package, three or four points with a prayer, we have diminished our understanding of salvation and what it means to be a follower of Christ. This shift from gospel culture to salvation culture has weakened the church. It's diminished the lives of Christians and it's made disciple making difficult. And I believe he is spot on. I believe that he makes this quote about the church becoming weaker and weaker over the, over the decades because we have shifted from the gospel culture to the salvation culture. I believe wholeheartedly that Bill Hull is spot on in this. Because here's the thing with, with living organ, organisms. That's a tough word for me to say. Rarely do we realize that we are getting weaker until there is a drastic difference. I, I've been going to the gym. I know you, you probably, like, really? You probably ought to try a little bit harder. I, I get it. Uh, I've been going to the gym faithfully now for several months. And when I started back lifting weights a few months ago, my initial thought was, oh, let me put on the weight that I did the last time I worked out. Almost 20 years ago. I couldn't believe how weak I was. As a matter of fact, there was one point in time where I was on a machine because I didn't want to hurt myself and I put the weight on that I knew that I once could do and I couldn't even budget. Over the years, I have be gradually become weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker. It didn't happen all at once. It happened over the years of neglect, and I believe that the church is experiencing the same thing. We have neglected the true gospel message, and as a result, we are weaker. So, what is the gospel, and how do we embrace it? It's a two-part message, really. Uh, part one, we are already familiar with. God loved the world so much that he sent his son to die for our sins. And through belief and response, we can enjoy eternal life with him. That's part one. God loves us so much. That he's like, there's a problem because of the sin in their life. So I'm going to send my son. And through our belief and our response within that belief, we get to enjoy eternal life with him. That's part one. The second part of the gospel. And this is the part that I think we need to pay attention to because it's new to some of us. The second part is that we get to become like Jesus. And that starts in this life that we live. Now, let, let me repeat it. The second part of what the gospel means is that you and I, we get to become like Jesus. 
And that starts in this life that we live. Us becoming like Jesus isn't something that's postponed to, to eternity when we get new bodies and we get new experiences and we get to enter into the presence of God in heaven. No, we get to become like him right now in this life that we are living. Let me share a couple of verses with you. Jesus is teaching in Matthew 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 28. He says this, Come to me, all who are weary and carry heavy burdens. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you. Because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. The key phrase in this is Jesus saying this, let me teach you. He's talking to a crowd. He's talking to a crowd of people who are stressed out, who are carrying around these difficult yokes, and they're carrying around these difficult burdens. And he says to them, let me teach you how to live life. I know that these verses, when we use them, are often used as a source of comfort for those going through a difficult time. He's not only talking to those who are stressed out and those who are burdened. He's talking to all of us. He wants to teach us how to live life as he would live our life. As a matter of fact, that's how Dallas Willard, another favorite author of mine, defines discipleship. Living our lives today as Jesus would live our life if he were me. That's what Jesus wants to do. That's what he's saying to the crowd here. I want to teach you how to live your life right now. That's his desire for doing ministry with us in the method that he did ministry. Jesus wants us to, to learn to live our lives doing the things that we do. How do we do our jobs? How we handle our families, our hobbies, our finances, our leisure time. How we do the things we do, Jesus wants us to teach Jesus wants to teach us how to do them if he were us. And doing these things in the manner that Jesus would do them, we're becoming like him. Let me just read some uh, Bible verses for you from Paul to the church. Right? So Jesus, he, he preached, he, he taught that lesson, he would go on to die. Uh, he was resurrected. He gave the disciples, as we studied last week, um, the, the task of you have a new role. You are to go into the world to make disciples. As a result of that, Paul comes on the scene. Uh, the gospel is being advanced to the ends of the earth. Churches are being set up. Paul is a missionary to these churches. He's helping them. He's working with them. He's teaching them these very basics. And he writes this, Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 23, instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new, na new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Did you catch that? You're created to be like Him. 2 Corinthians 3.18, so all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him 
as we are changed into his glorious image. Did you catch that, church? The Spirit makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. This is taking place in our life. It should be taking place in our life. Colossians 3, 10 through 11. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. Philippians 1 chapter 6 or verse chapter 1 verse 6. I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. There's four verses all speaking to the church about the surrendering of our lives and the journey that follows. We are to become like him and the journey will not be complete as Philippians points out until the day of Christ's return. That means since it's going to be complete there that there is this process of us becoming like him now. In the meantime, I am on mission to die to the fleshly nature that is holding on to my life and I am to take on the new nature that looks like Jesus. That church is the gospel. Jesus died for our sins so that we can live in eternity with him as we have belief and we respond to that. We are then beginning a journey of becoming like Jesus. So how do, how do we do that? How do we become like him? Well, I've got some bad news and some good news. The bad news, I can answer this question in about four more sermons. The good news, I'm going to simplify it for you right now. How do we become like him? We do what he did, how he did it. It really is that simple. If we do what he did and we do those things like him, we can't help but become like him. If you're a parent, you understand this concept. As parents, we've all heard from others, oh man, that boy is just like his daddy. Or man, that daughter, that girl, she acts just like her mama. Kids act like their parents because they are exposed to them in their natural behavior more than anyone else. I mean, kids see us interacting with one another, treating one another how we normally, genuinely treat people, kids are exposed to this more than anybody else. The reality is, whatever is modeled for us in our younger years is going to reveal itself when we are older. It's just part of the growth process. The same is true when it comes to Jesus. When we start imitating Jesus, we start to take on his character. When we do what he did within the context of our lives, we will start being a reflection of the gospel. 
So this is why we must pay attention to how Jesus interacted with people day to day. This is why we must pay attention to how Jesus did ministry. The key to becoming like Jesus is found in how we live our lives with other people. That's the key. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are story after story after story after story of not only the teachings of Jesus, but the examples of how he interacted with people, how he lived life with people, how he loved people. The key to becoming like Jesus is found in how we live our lives with others. The transformation of us becoming like him, that transformation in our lives is a lifelong journey. But the process is actually pretty simple. We do what he did how he did it, and we will become like him. 1 John 4, 7, and 8 is a popular verse. John's writing, he says, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God is love. In this verse, God and Jesus are synonymous with one another. They're one and the same. He is love. The good news, the gospel, is that we get salvation and we are to become like him. We're to become like him. What is he? He is love. So logic tells me that if he is love and I am trying to become like him, I need to be better at loving who he loves. The only way the gospel becomes real in my life and I live this out is through relationships. And here's the interesting thing about God. It's always been his desired method to reach the world through people. Paul said in, uh, to the church at Corinth, I will make my appeal. God wants to make his appeal to others through your life. Church, your life and how you love others is a direct reflection of the good news for them. So my prayer as we close this up is that we will have the same motivation that Paul had when he lived out the true meaning of the gospel. He said this, but my life is worth nothing unless I use it for finishing the work assigned, by, assigned me by the Lord Jesus. The work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Paul, my life is worth nothing unless I finish the work of telling other people about the good news. This isn't done with words only. 
Church, this is done with how we love others. Until next week, we'll see you.